Welcome to another episode of the Disillusioned Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Z. Today, I'm excited to introduce our, our guest, Dr. Hunter Smith. He's a 29-year-old general dentist in Jonesboro, Arkansas. He attended the University of Tennessee Health Science Center of College of Dentistry in Memphis. After graduating in May of 2014, Dr. Smith bought his first dental practice in August 2014, following a two-month stint as an associate in the practice. Building upon the early success, Dr. Smith joined up with a longtime best friend and fellow dental school graduate, Will Little, to form Southern Dental Group in October of 2015. Since forming Southern Dental Group, Dr. Little and Smith have acquired an additional five locations in the last 18 months and boasts revenues of over $5 million annually. Southern Dental Group will be adding two additional locations in the next two months. You have some impressive uh, credentials there. How, how do you have time to balance all of this? You know, it sounds a lot longer uh, than it actually feels like at times, but, uh, you know, we, we got a good partnership going. Um, I got a great support with my family, and then we got great associate doctors that allowed me to spend time doing what both I enjoy and what I'm good at and what helps the business overall. So, Well, we're excited to have you on the show today. I, I should have brought you on sooner. Basically, the theme of our podcast is, you know, the whole theme is the disillusioned dentist. You know, these new grads think they're going to come out and, and crush it and make all this money and, you know, not have to worry about the debt. And I guess to a certain extent you still can, but um, I guess you're one example of, of you know, the opportunities out there if you uh, take advantage and focus and find the right right opportunities and the right partners, anything is possible. Yeah, you know, the debt's the, debt's the big factor now for, for everybody that's graduating you know, or that has graduated in the last five years and that will graduate going forward. So uh, you just got to be realistic with what it is and, and what the challenges are that it that it causes and, and try your best to get around them for whatever works for your personal situation. So, But it's obviously the, the big talking point. So when you were in dental school, you know, towards the end of that, did you have this plan? You know, they always say write out your two, your three, your five, your 10-year plan. Did you, did you write this all out? three and five years ago, or does it kind of just keep adapting on the fly? You know, I knew I wanted to own. I knew I wanted to, to be my own boss. Um, I think that's why a lot of people get into the dental and then they don't, don't end up pursuing that. But so I knew that, but you know, multiple practice ownership, uh, business ownership really wasn't on my, my radar necessarily. And honestly, neither was how was I was going to deal with the debt that we just talked about. So, um, I would say I was more unprepared than, than it seems like based on the speed. But uh, since then, there's been a lot of prep time since graduation. So, but you know, in school, no, I had, I had no idea that this was going to be where it took me. Awesome. So kind of walk us back through your, your first job. You said you had a two month associateship. Was that a private practice? I guess you ended up buying into. So how did you come across that opportunity? And what is exactly, what exactly were you expecting when you took that, that first job? So my, I had a couple opportunities out of school to associate or join up with my now business partner um, in a startup location where we would just have ran that as a partnership startup, which looking back probably wouldn't have been a good idea. Um, but the third option that I had was an older doctor in the town that I am from uh, was looking to sell, had had a bad associateship that was supposed to turn into ownership that didn't. So he was obviously ready to go right then. Right. Um, so we met up a couple times at the end of my fourth year of dental school. Um, I told him that if I did come on with him that I couldn't associate just because the finances wouldn't have been there for me. Um, but I was interested in owning if he was willing to sell. So we put a plan together to uh, to have me own actually in September, and things went so well that I ended up buying that practice in August a month early after associating in his practice for about two months. So the associateship was fine. We were working toward ownership. So I really don't consider myself ever having been an associate because even from the beginning, we were planning on that. I was running the meetings um, and certain things like that. So it felt like I was trying to transition into a leadership role right away. So what kind of numbers are we talking here? How much was that practice doing? How much did he sell it to you for? Uh, how did you get financing from a bank with uh, you know all the student debt and the, the limited amount of, of dental experience? Yeah, so the practice was doing uh, right around right around 900 um, in revenue. Um, bought it for about six. Uh, financing wise, you know, nowadays I just don't really think you can 
get a traditional loan from a big bank, especially a big national bank straight out of school. So, um, and that's what big banks were telling me when I was looking at, at options during dental school. Um, but the, the guy, the bank that he banked at is a semi-local bank. It's regional to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, they just knew him and that practice had been there forever. They, they had met me and we had a good meeting. They knew that he was staying on as a senior associate so that the practice was going to replicate itself, even if I sucked real bad. So, um, <laughs> we just had a good meeting with the yeah, bank. Nice, and, uh, and Nice safety net there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, the bank, the bank was on board because of, because of him staying and, and knowing his situation. So, uh, fairly easy, typical loan, 10 year AM, uh, amortization, which means it's spread out over 10 years of payments and then a fairly reasonable interest rate. So, uh, that first one really wasn't that bad, um, because of the relationship that he had with the local bank and because of my hometown ties. So, so once you bought that practice, what, what was your initial game plan? Were you going to move into the practice with him and build it up into a two doctor practice or just have him associate or, or what was your game plan and how did it play out? Yeah, so he wanted uh, he wanted a year to to try to transition out uh, of owners of, of dentistry and and maybe look into teaching or or different paths for him moving to a, to a vacation area and doing some part time work. Um, so you know, being completely naive to dental business and ownership, I've honestly expected to break even or even take on a very very little amount of money that first year. Right. While I was getting my speed up and he was doing the majority of the dentistry, um, but at least I got to own. So, uh, you know, I expected that to be a one year associate with him and then me take over the practice full time uh, as a solo doctor and work it for the rest of my career. I mean, that was our that was our conversations early on. That was my thought process early on. So, you know, it didn't turn out like that because uh, he ended up wanting to keep working. He wanted to stick around. Um so the second practice that we actually bought, or my second practice and, and first with my partner, we bought due to needing to get busier clinically because we both had senior doctors who still wanted to work and they were making us money. So right. we that second location, honestly, to add a couple of days of personal time um, in the chair so that we can make a little bit more on our on our uh, clinical abilities. So, you know, and then it just snowballed from there because we started to enjoy what we're doing now. Um, a little bit more than we did clinical dentistry. So, you know, that's kind of how that all evolved for me going forward. So just to recap, you bought that first practice in August of 2014, and then you joined up with your buddy, what, a little bit more than a year after that when you guys got the second practice and kind of formed Southern Dental Group? Yeah, I looked at a practice in November, just a couple months after I bought the first one because it was a merger opportunity, I thought. Um, I wasn't going to buy another practice necessarily. But uh, I did look at merging some patients into my practice that ended up falling through because he wanted to sell the commercial real estate, um, and I didn't need that. So we, uh, myself and my partner, actually started looking at real estate together, I guess, maybe in uh, early 2015, just a few months after I'd bought. And then that transitioned into looking for another practice, which we started working on in June or July of 15 with the closing of October 1st of 15, which was our first practice together and the formation of, of Southern Dental Group. Wow, that's impressive. So now that you guys have the six practices, you're adding two more. How far apart are they in a, in a geographical area? Are they all pretty close to each other or far apart? You know, from our hometown hub, I guess you would call it, there's three or four practices in the, the immediate uh city i guess you know jonesboro is a, a city of 60 67,000 but uh we have a metro area if you want to call it a metro for a city that size of maybe 150 that come into work from a bunch of smaller towns around the area so right. in that little immediate metro there's there's four of the future eight and then the other four are there's one closer down to little rock arkansas and then there is three in the uh, Memphis area of Tennessee. So how do you guys uh, manage those ones that are a little more distant out? Is that a tougher job or have you been able to, to manage those? For a long time, it was me. Um, I, I had a senior associate in place 
that was doing almost all the dentistry. So I had a bunch of free time. Um, it's what I enjoyed doing. So I was, if you want to call it managing, you know, doing the books, doing the payroll we did together, um, reviewing the practices. Uh, we had meetings and stuff together, but uh, I would say that I was doing a little bit more management at that point day to day. Um, and then we're doing acquisitions as opposed to startups as well. So for the most part, you're buying practices that have systems and, and steps and, and staff in place that know how to make the practice run from a day-to-day -day standpoint. So then you're really just running it month to month, which I had plenty of time to do and he had plenty of time to kind of help do. So management, obviously, honestly, in, in acquisitions is a little bit overrated until you get to a point where you can't spend the time to do things like payroll and, and routine visits to the offices. And since since we got a little bit bigger and we weren't able to do that, we've started to build a management layer, an administrative layer of uh, of staff members who kind of do specific things for the entire organization as opposed to just one practice. Right. So how many days a week or how many hours are you actually physically uh, doing dentistry with your hands versus managing? At this point, uh, I'm doing maybe, God, it's embarrassing to say, probably about five hours of clinical dentistry, and then I do maybe another five or six of uh, ortho. I took tip edge um, orthodontics so for general dentists, so I do some, some general dental level orthodontics for all the locations um, a handful of hours a week as well. So I would say... I'm in the office seeing patients 10 to 12 hours a week. Wow, that's pretty baller. I think that's the uh, the American dream out there, right? <laughs> For some people. For others, you know, we get shit on a little bit and, and called uh, unethical and businessmen destroying their profession and oh, all this God. other garbage. But, you know, for me, it's, it's what I felt like was best. Um, you know, we still demand the highest ethical quality and the moral quality. We treat our patients the same as if we had two patients in the whole organization. So I sleep really well at night knowing that, that that's not true, that I don't, I don't think of this as just a business, you know, it's still healthcare to me as well. Um, but for me personally, I just thought that, you know, my time and what I enjoyed doing was more what I'm doing now versus, versus clinical dentistry. And to me, that's okay to others. It's not, but whatever. So it seems like part of your guys' model is when you acquire these practices, you get the like the selling senior doctor to stay on as an associate. Is that kind of your model throughout all of your acquisitions, or have you had to hire new associates? So we have uh, of the eight, I guess four are are purely senior associate driven, or primarily senior associate driven, and then the other the other four are junior associates. Um, so we've bought practices where it was just a junior associate running them, um, and the senior doctor left, or we installed a junior doctor in a in a practice, and there was no senior doctor. Uh, it sucks way worse. Um, it's it's a lot harder. The associate model in general is very tough, um, and it's not what we would like to do. Uh, you know, we certainly don't want to have twenty or thirty practices with twenty or thirty junior associates trying to manage them. Um, so for us. We wanted to, to buy transitioning senior doctor practices who had a few years left and wanted to retire on their own terms and then and buy those practices for them and allow them to do that and then look at options for us to uh, help people get into ownership, um, maybe piece off some of these practices or allow some of the junior associates who do come in to buy some of these practices eventually. So, Yeah, that's kind of my next question. Um you know, it seems like a big issue is having associates run your practices. There was actually uh, that article that gained some traction on Dentaltown a few weeks ago, the the multi-practice model and epidemic in dentistry. I saw you commented on some of the stuff there. You know, there's a bunch of haters there. But um, myth number two, it says you have associates work the other practices for you. So I guess you kind of just answered it. I was going to ask you what kind of problems you foresee when those when those senior associates are ready to retire in a few years. Yeah, that article was garbage for a number of reasons. You know, it, the, the premise was okay, I think. There, it addressed a lot of issues that should be addressed that maybe, to, you know, pull the, uh, you know, the beer goggles off people that are looking at multiple practices as some kind of end-all, be-all or some way to get rich scheme or something like that. I think the premise is fine to address right. those issues. 
the the way that it went about it was obviously completely wrong and even the wording of that that myth is um that you'll install junior associates or associates to run it and that'll hurt the practice you know that's or that it won't work and that's not true you know associates can run the practice and be profitable um dentistry is a very very high margin business and especially if there's not a ton of debt um even a junior associate driven practice can have 15 or more percent EBITDA, which is owner profits, you know, right. and if it's a, if it's a $600,000 practice and 15%, you know, that's a, that's a nice chunk of change for not, for not um, actually being in the office. So it's, it's not that necessarily that's, that's the issue. It's more doctors really should be using associateships to, for a couple of reasons, primarily because they don't know where they want to live. Um, and they don't want to settle down, which an, a practice will do if you buy. Or two, they're they're wanting to learn how to be owners, not how to be associates. So, it, if you're if you're training these doctors to be lifelong associates, they're going to have that mentality. They're going to they're going to just be clinicians that are not worried about the business. It's going to hurt the business from a profitability standpoint, and you're just going to deal with ser- serial associates who you got constant turnover with. You know, for us, we put these junior associates in place with, you know, I tell them on the front end, I want you to work for me for two years and I want you to go buy a practice. Right. Um, so it's a different model. You you can't you can't buy these, install them in these relationship type practices that, that you're buying from a doctor who's been there for 30 or 40 years and then ex- install a junior associate and expect it to be the same way. You know, it's, it's it, those people came to that dentist. I mean, you're looking at more of a, a high new patient driven that are seeking uh, value and, and cheaper dentistry. If you want to cheaper in terms of price and not quality that really don't care who the dentist is, as long as they get them out of pain and, and, and work within their budget. So you're attracting a different kind of patient base um, than you are when you're trying to build a, a solo doctor practice. So you know, it, it's broken because it's bad for the dentist and not necessarily bad for the multiple practice owner. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I just want to kind of touch back to that article just for a minute here and talk about myth number one, uh, more practices equals more profits. Uh, I told you before this podcast that last year, my wife and I were trying to buy a lot of practices. We never wanted to do a startup. And a lot of the practices we found were doctors selling their, you know, satellite offices or second or third office, and they just couldn't handle it. And kind of what the myth says, that they were kind of just losing money there per se. So do you think there's any truth to myth number one, that a lot of times these doctors maybe expand too quickly or can't handle multiple locations? Or what are your thoughts on that? What do you see out there? They're expanding for the sake of expanding, and they are doing what the article in some cases, and so the article, one of the problems again with it is it paints this big broad image of, of multiple practice ownership all being the same, right. where you know like one doctor goes and starts a satellite office in another city for some god knows reason, as opposed to someone who's actually building a group practice or corporate, you know, in quotations or DSO location. So, you know, it makes sense that if you're expanding just and adding an overhead and expecting to go over there a couple of days a week and then now you're only at your primary practice three days a week or right. you've got a junior associate that's splitting time between the two, but you're still trying to practice in a relationship-driven model and not a new patient model where you're marketing and you're looking for a high flow of patients in the door, then, yeah, that's not going to work. You know, that's 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 why these satellite offices are just an additional overhead that takes tons of time from the owner and not a lot of profit and it actually decreases profit from their primary location. So that's, you got to buy that second practice with a goal in mind of terms of both what you're going to use the practice for and then what is a long-term end goal for the practice. And that can change. It's changed for me. You know, we bought the second one to get busier clinically and that changed because the senior associate was a long-term associate. Uh, we were highly profitable there. It didn't need as much of our attention. And then our exit strategies changed. You know, we, we might be looking to piece this off to an associate after, after long term in a practice where he could build relationships within there. So, you know, what happens too often is, is kind of what the article alluded to and that they just open another location and expect to get twice as much money. 
because they have two practices now. But really, it's just taking time and energy and right. and focus away from their primary location, which probably wasn't being that well ran that well to begin with. And now they're trying to do it in two different spots with twice as much overhead. So um, expansion too quickly, expansion without a goal in mind, and ex- and just for the sake of expansion, absolutely is is an issue with people trying to get into multiple practice ownership. That's true. So what's the deal with this new mentality and trend that where these young docs just want to own, own a lot of practices? Do you come across a lot of these kids or why do you think they want to own a lot of practices or do you think they're going to be successful or how do they know they want to own multiple practices versus building one? Is it just something in their personality or just what's going on with this whole trend in, in the multiple practice model? I think, I think there's a couple of thoughts I think one, it's getting more prevalent because of people that are speaking on it have that model. So Dr. Costas, Dr. Luna, you know myself, some people that are kind of out there talking a lot and lecturing a lot about ownership, kind of are multiple practice owners. So they see that as being the goal. Um, also, I think you know student loans are obviously paying a role in it. They're trying to get as much money as possible. And then thirdly. Everybody, you know, that went to dental school, I don't care what they say. If you go ask them or whatever, they didn't get in it to help people. They didn't get in it because they wanted to save the world one tooth at a time. (laughs) Almost everybody went to dental school as opposed to medical school or going to work on Wall Street or whatever you want to do because the lifestyle for the return on investment, you know, what time you had to put into the practice and how much income you made at the end of it was in the favor of the dentist. So. Now they're seeing this multiple practice trend as being the way to do that. You know, less chair time that you're tied down with while still making a a good living or even more than you could in a solo doctor practice. is just so enticing because that's the type of personalities that are applying to dental school. So it's just a shift in focus because of the successful people or the people that are showing financial success in the industry are multiple practice owners and they're speaking a lot. Whereas before, maybe they were solo side owners who did their own thing and did a startup straight out of school and hung a shingle. So that was the trend forever. So I think it's just a trend in who they're listening to, but it still plays off the same type of personality to people that have applied to dental school for the last 50 years. It's just a different focus now because of what, what information is out there. Um, In terms of whether I think they'll be successful. And obviously I talked to a ton of these guys because I'm a young doctor with multiple practices and they, they would seek that, that, advice right um i think it's dangerous to approach it with the goal of multiple practice ownership while you're still in school having or having never owned a business it's it's different you know there, you can do the preparation you can do the uh the studying and you can learn just like you did throughout all schools but but owning a business and being a leader and a boss and and being the hr and the CEO and the CFO and the accountants and all that stuff that goes along with being a, a business owner um, is a lot of experience and it's a lot of just fitting your personal personality, personal personality, uh, your personality. So, uh, you know, to have that goal in mind before you ever even own one is kind of scary because it, it does have a focus exclusively on being as financially successful as possible and not understanding the rest of the, the job. But, you know, so I think it's in terms of financial success, I think a lot of them will be successful because they'll train to be right. in terms of, you know, is it lasting? Um, I'll, I'll be a little bit more worried about that. And I do think that the goal out of school should be to own a practice, do really well clinically, treat your patients right, you know, be a great doctor and a great healthcare provider. And then if you wanted to expand into multiple practice ownerships because that's what you liked better, then fine. Uh, but at least you have that experience treating patients. That is some good advice. So what's the quickest way for a new grad to get into practice ownership? You know, as you said, with the current debt, with the current debt loads, it's a lot harder to get financing for a new grad. So what do you see as the best path to ownership? Do you recommend, you know, taking a corporate job for a year to get a lot of experience or, or what are some of the better paths to take to the quickest way to practice ownership? It's so hard because it's so region specific in the United States and, 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 and goal specific. It's, there's just not a really 
you know, if there was a perfect path, I think everybody would be on it. Um, right. I don't like, and this is, I really probably can't even say this cause I didn't do one, but I don't like the AGD GPR path. Um, I've, and sometimes it's good. So if you go to a really good AGD program and you're, or GPR program and you're learning skills that can make you that are more attractive as an owner and as an associate, uh, that you can add to locations like implant placement or uh, third molars or, or something like that. But too often these AGDs and GPRs are for people that really don't know what they want to do. They go to do it to get more clinical experience, you know, air quotes. And it's just a fifth year down school where you're just seeing a triage of patients. Yeah, I would say uh, 75% of my friends who did a GPR basically said it was pretty much a waste. Yeah, so exactly. So I don't, you know, I don't like that path. Corporate path is okay. You're going to learn. You're going to get your speed up. Um, you may learn some bad habits, so you need to approach it from a practice management standpoint as learning what they do well, but trying to, to, to take the beer goggles off again and see it for what it is. They are production-based. They push production. I've had staff members that worked at corporate, and although I haven't worked there myself, there is too much of a focus on more production, more production, more production, so I think you need to be leery of that. You know, ideally what would happen is there would be a bunch of retiring doctors that want to do a six month long, six month to a year long transition with you uh, where you associate for six months to a year while you're working on the contracts. And then after a year you buy the practice, um, they stick around for six more months or, or, or maybe leave right away. And then you're the owner of the practice. So, a private practice short short term associateship transitioning with a senior doctor, I think is the best path. But even that has huge risk, and that if the owner backs out, or if the owner doesn't practice the way you want to, or you disagree, or yeah. you know, there's there's still so many ifs there. Um, I don't really the startup model is so hard. Uh, there's a lot of good advice out there that I really can't give the same level of. Um, but if you're going to do a startup, I, I feel like you got to really, really, really prepare and, and know what you're getting into. And I really don't think you should do it immediately after school. Um, but the, and that's that's another way to get into ownership as long as you understand the challenges that the, that it provides. But to me, the easiest and best way is is a short term private practice associateship into the practice that you're going to buy. So what would you say to all those people that say, you know, these new grads should just move out to the middle of nowhere and either associate or buy a practice and they're guaranteed to crush it? Is there any truth in that or are those some myths as well? I think it's less about like whether it's rural or urban and more about how far you're willing to go away from certain areas. So uh, I'm going to use Derek Williams as an example here. You know, we talked while he was still in dental school and looking at practices. Mm-hmm. The guy was willing to go to five or six states. Um, his his range of what he was looking for, or the the range that he was looking in, allowed the what he was looking for to be much more available to him, you know, and and being able to go rural versus urban only allowed him to look in those rural areas as well. So, you know, there's urban areas that you're going to crush it. There's rural areas that you're going to crush it, and there's each of those areas that have really shitty jobs that you're not going to do well in. So uh, to me, in my opinion, it's more how far and how you know wide a range you're casting to look for these opportunities and less so about necessarily how many people are in a town. You know, you, if it's more than 10,000 people, you shouldn't look there because it's too urban. You know, it's in a rural town it could be just as bad. You know, there's, it's just it's all about the opportunity itself and the problem with just saying we'll just go rule is it it doesn't give any true advice on where to go it doesn't give you know it assumes that there's all these rural docks that are just ready to sell and then it assumes that we want to do this in an urban or a rural area where we don't feel comfortable so a lot of people would rather make 50 or 60 grand less a year if to live where they want to live than to live in you know east texas or wherever so um yeah i think that's some sound advice uh my wife and i both kind of heard in dental school there's always rumblings about you know if you come to texas you know you can crush it so i'm from florida she's from cali 
we thought, hey, let's move to Dallas. It's not that rural, you know, it's still a big city. We'll be fine there. But once we got here, we kind of found out that, uh, I don't know, the, the new grab market is pretty flat here. I mean, you can definitely crush it if you find the right gig. But as a whole, I would say associates here in Dallas probably make the same as, you know, an associate anywhere. Yeah, I don't know that associate pay changes much. You know, it's it seems pretty universal. Maybe another ten or twenty thousand on the base or something like that. But a new grad is going to make in an associate gig as a base pay somewhere around one hundred twenty to one hundred thirty thousand, and then get somewhere between thirty percent of production, thirty five percent of collections. With their speed level, they're going to be able to do forty or fifty a month at most, unless they're just getting overran with corporate patients and. You know, a new grad one or two years out of school is going to do really, really well in an associateship to make over 180. Um, I would say it's, I'd say making 180 as an associate, you're in the top 20% of associate earners for sure. So what do your junior associates uh, produce over there? It depends. A lot of our junior associates are are brand new. To, so Right out of dental school? Yeah, we've, we've hired two or three straight out of school. So... And then, you know, we are in a, a competitive area, so some of it is on us to, to give them patience. But um, we would expect our junior associates, if we have the patience after six months, to be able to do $50,000 um, a month would be a really good goal for them. Um, right. I would say they average closer to 45, 40 to 45. With so what do you guys uh what do you guys do to bring in new patients? You guys have any special marketing tactics or or what do you guys do? You know, we're really bad marketers. I think of all the things that that we don't do well as as business owners or at least dental business owners that a lot of multiple practice people do well is is they have a strong uh marketing program and we're not great at it. Um we actually outsource our marketing to breakaway practice. Um, uh-huh. they, they design our mailers. They, they created a website for us. They, they monitor and uh, track our, our pay-per-click campaigns. Do they, uh, uh, did you outsource your calls to them too? Do they answer your calls when the, when someone calls the office? They do overflow for us. Um, so some offices really u- utilize them. Um, we have a quasi startup that's, that's open three days a week only. So they get, they answer quite a few calls there. Um, some of our more established practice, you know, they may only answer 25 or 30 a month. So, uh, but yeah, they do do our overflow phone calls. So have, so you, seen a boost in, uh, have you seen a boost in new patient flow and production since uh, Breakaway took over a lot of those things? Tough to say because we've not been using them long enough to judge it on a quarter to quarter basis, I guess. Right. So I can't compare like – the first quarter of 17 to the first quarter of 16 because we didn't have them in the first quarter of 16. So uh, we had a really, really good first quarter of 17 and we were using, using them um, during that time. So, you know, I don't know if it's directly correlated, um, but you know, because we've been approving everything. So, you know, can I sit there and say hundred percent sure that breakaway marketing or, or, or whatever has our call tracking in general, um, or, or any of the things that we do directly are the reason uh, I can't, but the things that we have been implementing are increasing our practices, profitability and our EBITDA. So, you know, I think the combination of the things at least is working for us. Awesome. So what were some of the biggest challenges you faced early on when you bought that first practice? And what are some of your biggest challenges today besides the marketing? Uh, biggest challenges, um, you know, we've grown so quickly that, you know, this is more of a personal challenge than I guess a a challenge that we've had from a business standpoint. We right. grew so quickly that we got complacent and relied on the existing model of the practice and the existing systems of the practice and the existing staff and the way they've always done things to the point that you know, we were so successful early by just fixing line item overhead, you know, going through and fixing mm-hmm. supplies. Go ahead. No, you you went in and sort of changed the easy stuff, maybe the supplies or something simple here and there, a little few small tweaks. Exactly. Just the, just the small tweaks and, and worked on some of the hygiene stuff and the x-rays that they were taking and a way to track that and implemented really small changes 
that that really gave an immediate produce uh, increase in production and collections. And then, but we never really increased the the revenue that much. We more fixed the overhead. Um, so for us, I'd say the biggest challenge was transitioning into a true multiple practice administrative layer um, ran business where we utilized our size to negotiate supply discounts and we utilized our size to start looking at labs that we like to to use our volume to as a as a plus to start sharing staff between the the practices where reasonable to to do some of the things at a central level such as insurance uh verification or or marketing and it at a central level instead of paying for it at an individual practice level and just having someone sit there to do that so I think for us the biggest transition was was making that management layer effective and not just relying on six individual practices but rather a, a company of six practices. So you know that was that was the biggest challenge for for me uh and for us I think in the last 6 months or so. So as Dr. Mark Casas likes to preach and practice, have you guys like systematized your practices or are you still kind of in transition there or? Still in transition. It's a work in progress. Um, I think Mark has bought some practices that maybe needed more tender love and care than ours did. I think right. we've tended to buy practices that were minimum doing $600,000, $750,000 a year. Um, and, and actually four of them were doing over a million. So we tended to buy practices that had a certain level of systemization in place. Um, I'm more talking about that our challenges being not the, not the day-to-day systems, but just things that we could do better on, um, such as, you know, what's a good example? Knowing where our new patients are coming from. You know, we know they're coming in, we're marketing to them, and the marketing's obviously working. But to what level is the marketing working? Are the you know is our internet just really killing it and our mailers are okay? Um, you know we don't we didn't really know that or at that level of of detail. You know our AR report. You know our AR is within a normal range, so we we assume it's fine. As opposed to taking our administrative level and going in and actually looking at the AR and okay as a whole it may be okay, but we got. 15 outstanding claims that are 60 days old that total two or 3000 bucks that if we were on top of things, those claims would have been resubmitted by now. So not day to day systemization, but more, you know, an overall healthy, healthy company systemization that, that we're working on and working towards. That makes that sense. sense. So when you're adding practices, at which point is it, uh, you know, when you go from three to four or four to five or five to six, at what point is it, do you need to install that, that central core, you know, to add stability throughout instead of relying on each practice? Like once you get the three practices, you could kind of still wing it. At what level do you need to like take a step back and install that, that I guess leadership or team of staff that kind of oversee everything? Yeah, I don't think there's a necessary necessarily a number of practices. It's it's more when your time is getting so sp- spread thin enough that you're not able to to do what your responsibilities are um, really effectively. So when you're starting to slack and not look at the AR report every month, or when you're rushing through payroll and not checking for uh, certain things, or you know when you're or not double checking the timesheets or when you're doing certain things like that to the point where you're, that's where you're starting to spread thin and you need to look at adding someone to do that responsibility. So a lot of it depends on delegation. A lot of it depends on what the practices were like prior to purchase. So we were buying good practices so we didn't have to centralize quite as soon. Um, There was two of us. So obviously that helped with the, with the spread of the responsibilities. Um, but, you know, to not give you kind of a bullshit answer, I would say, you know, if you're a solo doctor and you're still working clinically a little bit, mm-hmm. and you, get, you get to three practices, you're starting to get pretty thin unless you're a, you're a real workaholic and you're getting 60, 70 hours a week of, of um, total work time. So, right. 
you know, once you once you start getting to that three and you start getting to two, two and a half million dollars of revenue and you got you got 10 or 15 employees and uh, you got a couple payrolls or, or or something along those lines, then, yeah, it's time to start. You're just stretched too thin to really be effective. Yeah, that makes sense. So what kind of dentistry are you guys doing? Is it mostly bread and butter? Do you guys do a lot of implants or any fancy, you know, full mouth reconstructive cases or, or what exactly are you guys doing out there? So I think the best way for a multiple practice owner to be really successful um, and to get the most out of being a multiple practice owner is to kind of build a, a base of, of practices that are basically referral sources towards you or, or someone you hire that provide specialty level care. So for me, you know, I do orthodontics. My partner does molar endo and places implants. Mm-hmm. Um, we have senior doctors who are very experienced taking out third molars. So we keep all that stuff in house because right. of our size. Um, even though every doctor doesn't necessarily do all the procedures, yeah. um, part of the benefit of having all the locations is that we can refer internally. So um, as a whole, I would say what our organization refers out at this point is primarily specialty level pedo where hospital based pedo. Right. Um, and that's, that's probably about it. Um, so you guys got, never thought of like bringing in a pediatric dentist to rotate through all, you know, all your practices or how does that work? We have uh, my my area is kind of short on you know our pediatric dentist stay yeah. stay pretty pretty busy um, yeah but I would love to I, you know we've looked at at starting a pedo ortho practice um, where we yeah, focus that's obviously very uh, popular out here in Dallas you know a lot of the pediatric dentists you know travel throughout the, you know they'll go to five practices one day each week and you know go to those practices maybe four times a month and. Obviously, a very uh, popular model. Yeah, I like the model. I I like it for the doctor as well. Um, in certain cases, if the if the area was urban enough where you could get multiple doctors of, or multiple groups to hire you to do that, then I think that's a good way as a specialist also, or any kind of you know, if you have a specialty level, you know, if you're doing molar endo and you really really enjoy it and you want to travel around a bunch of offices or place implants, you know, that's uh, you know, I kind of like that as a you know, it's, you know, it's a business owner in a way. Um, it's a job in a way as well, cause you're only getting paid for what your two hands do. But, um, there's some, some stress that doesn't go along with that, that owning a business does. So, uh, my area is just not quite urban enough where there's multiple groups around here that could hire somebody that, to do something like that. Right. I don't think we're busy enough to keep a full time pediatric dentist. And then, um, our pediatric dentists that do have practices, I don't, I think are too busy to do any kind of two or three days a week somewhere else. So. Awesome. So what is kind of, I know you don't seem to have a long-term plan, but what is your uh, short-term plan? How many more practices do you guys uh, think you end up, you know, going to add to the repertoire or do you kind of just find opportunities as you go along? Once you get to a certain point, it seems like they start finding you uh, more than you find them. You know, people call you like, hey, hey, do you want this one? I don't know. Send me the P&L. Let's see how it looks. Exactly. Exactly. You know, so we've turned down probably three or four times as many as we've actually ended up purchasing. You know, we've done a lot of evaluations for ourselves that we didn't pursue. And I think that's important for anybody looking at a practice is you got to be willing to say no to a bad deal. Um, too many people try to negotiate instead of seeing the practice for what it is and walking away and looking for a better opportunity. Um, so what do you guys look at when you evaluate a practice and what are some of these reasons you're turning them away just because of sheer numbers or you're finding major red flags? Uh, for us now, we almost definitely have to have some kind of senior associate transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're turning away anybody who's looking to sell them off. Yeah. Um, because the debt's so hard to, at our level, it's harder to get financing and get lending. Right. Uh, so we don't want to waste that debt on a practice that's not pretty highly profitable as is. So we we turned a bunch away just because they didn't meet a, you know, we'd like to have six figures of, of cash flow after debt payments before we would even consider it. So uh, just different requirements because of, 
what our time value is now, what the value of our lending options are, and then what our what our model is in terms of senior associates and junior associates. Uh, I would say is is what's keeping us from buying every practice we look at. So because you guys have bought so many practices, you guys have like instant, uh, you know, funds to for banks to lend you money or is it getting harder now? Yeah, it's the exact opposite. Um, you know, something that Mark Costas and I've talked about a few times, he's talked on it in his podcast um, and with me personally, well, you get to a certain point and banks really shut down on you, um, especially if you're leveraged to any extent at all. Um, this It's just too easy for a bank to be a lender to solo doctors they're like 99 percent of you know no defaults less right. than one percent default rate or something like that two percent something like that yeah but it's increases significantly and some some banks have gotten burned by regional dso's who fell through and they've they've been highly leveraged with that one dso um the, so it took out you know it's the same as 10 to 12 solo practitioners defaulted on their loan suddenly that one dso does and it's a huge part of their portfolio. So lots of national lenders and bigger lenders don't even loan to, to DSOs. And that once you breach a certain threshold of debt and a certain threshold of practices, they don't even look at you. Um, so it's, it's really easy to get one practice after a certain amount of time, and then it gets progressively harder af- as you add more debt. So for us, it's getting harder and harder. For Mark, it's getting harder and harder. Um, even some bigger DSOs have have had to take hard money or or private money at high interest rates, um, as opposed to a typical bank note, if they look to expand quickly. So with all these uh you know corporate chains expanding so rapidly, are they all crushing it, or a lot of them losing money, or what 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 do you think is going on with all these corporate chains that are just blowing up still day by day? Depends on what corporate chain you're talking about and how big they are. You know, Heartland's super debt leveraged. Um, you know, they just had a report come out where they they have over a billion dollars in debt um, to, to match a billion dollars of revenue. You know, if you compared that to us, um, our smallest DSO, we have about 2.5, 2.4 million of debt and over $5 million of, of revenue. So we're probably 50% to revenue, whereas they're 100%. Um, they're 7.4 times EBITDA to debt. And we're less than two or right at two. So the bigger ones that have already taken on private money and private equity money, they're probably extremely debt leveraged. Um, and they're spending a lot of money on growth. So they may actually be breaking even or or losing cash with the idea of, of going public and cashing out in that way. Um, so let's simplify that for our listeners. Do you think these companies are just going to continue to expand and become more profitable, or are they actually expanding and losing money? They're expanding and losing money in cases with the idea of a cash out. Um, I mean, do you think these companies are like, who would buy these companies then? If they're so debt leveraged, are they actually profitable? Or are, they, are they liquid? Or are a lot of these corporations and DSOs kind of illiquid assets? In my opinion, they're going to look a certain – some of the bigger ones are going to look to go public, um, you know, and, and take uh, take on stocks and things like that. Um, and then they can just show on their balance sheets or whatever where X amount was used as for growth funds and that they're actually more profitable than they appear because of how much they're putting in towards growth, which they plan on slowing down. So um, other ones like Comfort Dental, you know, they grow through – basically a franchise model where there's partners in every practice, but you're not necessarily just a hundred percent owner of your practice, but you own a practice maybe that you've never even been to. Um, so they grow by individual funds, I think, and less so of bank debt. Um, what are your thoughts on, on some of those models where the, you know, doctor can buy in as a partner, like comfort or Pacific dental. Do you think that's, good for some people do you think it's a complete scam ownership is the best way to take financial and 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 personal freedom over your career it's it's so what about being a 49 percent owner in pacific does that still have the same benefits of ownership no not at all not at all if you're not 100 percent owner you're 
you're not really an owner. You don't you you have to at least talk to whoever the other equity owners are. And if you're a forty nine percent owner, you own absolutely nothing because you have no control. You're you're basically a profit share. Which, you know, if you're planning on being a lifelong associate, then fine. It's it's obviously better than just getting a percentage of your collections. But, you know, in general, being a practice owner financially is significantly better than buying into any kind of uh, Pacific or, or any of those larger DSOs as a owner, if you want to call it that. So, right. you know, they grow that way. They sell off part those Pacific is not currently sold to private equity, so they're they're privately owned. Um, they're just highly highly profitable specialty model that just prints money because of contracts that they have with HMOs and PPOs, and they got doctors that are buying in equity levels that doesn't make them owners. And <laughs> you know, there's there's a bunch of different models in in the corporate DSO way of doing things. Um, that allow them to grow, and then once you get private equity money, it's just a free for all. Buy as many. So obviously, uh, nobody can predict the future, but do you think these big box corporate chains are going to keep growing, or is there going to be a bubble that's going to pop soon? I mean, a lot of my friends and I, you know, we don't last that long in these corporate offices—maybe six months, twelve months, or even less. How how can they afford all this turnover, and is that going to kill them, or does that not bother them at all? It doesn't bother them if their model is correct for what they're what they're trying to get. You know, so if they're a value based company, that or a value based model that's that's trying to save the patient money and they're taking tons of PPOs and the and and HMOs and Medicaid's and and all that stuff continues on and it, that continues to be a bigger issue within dental uh, and patients get they they start to choose more and more because of finances then I think the corporate trains are going to continue to grow because patients are going to care less and less and more about money. Um, I think there will always be a segment of, of boutique practices and fee-for-service practices and, and, and good business-ran solo doctor practices um, because there will be patients that seek out that kind of care. I mean, but, how many patients, what percentage of the population do you think uh, you know, are seeking that boutique-type practice? Like very small percentage. Yeah, I mean, I would say small. Again, this is all speculation on my part, but I, right, of course, I would just based on my feelings and, and what I see and what the advantages are and what the companies are doing, just for us at a at a just minuscule level compared to the heartlands of the world, it's gonna it's gonna get close to fifty fifty or even slightly corporate favored over the long long haul in terms of how much money is being spent. On dentistry, you know, I think more will be spent in corporate offices than it will be in, in private doctor-owned practices eventually, um, unless something drastically changes with student loan debt, with dental insurances. You know, like I say this all the time, and I talk when I when I give interviews or when I talk post, and everybody wants to buy in corporate dentistry and, and put all this on these these businessmen getting in and running the profession. You know, corporate dentistry. And group practices are a result of of issues that are facing the solo doctor and the new graduate, such as dental insurance reimbursements, such as student loan debt, supply company squeezes, um, lack of business training, perceived risk of ownership that don't exist. So all these things are pushing towards a corporate model. So they just got to sit there, I mean, and just be okay to, and then there's graduating too many dentists a year um, and blaming it on access to care because no one will go live in the middle of Montana and see patients. Right. You know, so corporate dentistry is a result for the most part. The problem is the things that are causing that result are getting more corporate favored. So corporate continues to grow. So. Just so what do you say to those consultants who, you know, tell all these doctors to, you know, drop all these insurances and go out of network and they shouldn't take any of these insurance companies? I mean, do you think that's a smart idea or? It's a it's a business decision and a model that you got to embrace if you're going to do that. And and I think in certain areas it's impossible. Um, I think in other areas it is. 
But you got to be willing to do things like, you know, operate with a really, really small staff. Um, you got to be doing things like having high fees compared to what patients could get elsewhere and being okay with that because you think you're providing care at a different level than a more value-based practice would be. Um, you got to fully commit if you're going to go that route. You can't be a PPO doctor and try to have a fee-for-service practice. Right. You got to be a fee-for-service doctor working towards a fee-for-service practice and all that comes with that. I agree. Um, all right, we only got a few more minutes here. So, what is your final piece of advice to that new grad who's uh, four to five hundred thousand dollars in debt? It's my opinion that the way that we combat the issues that are facing dentistry um, and th that are working against new grads and young doctors is to get into dental ownership, to get into practice ownership and at least take on some level of business acumen so that you can run your practice and be effective and compete to an extent. You can't compete in certain areas against corporate. You can't compete them at their own game. But if you're a competent business owner and you're watching the numbers and you're, you're, you're running the business effectively so that you're able to be financially successful and not have to do certain things, we can – we can combat that to an extent. So you're not going to pay four or $500,000 of student loan debt off making 150, 160,000 a year as an associate. Um, this is not going to happen. You got to be a business owner. You can't complain about dental insurances and then go work at a corporate chain or as an associate taking every PPO under the sun. You know, you can't complain about supply costs when you won't take five minutes to, to review your supply order and, find out whether that bonding agent's really $10 better than that other one. Um, you've got to take certain control of certain areas of your practice. You have to get into ownership and you have to take control over the financial part of being a practice owner. And I think if we do those things, you know, we can pay, it's still a great career. It's still a great profession. But if we continue to just rack up student loan debt go work for corporate chains for or or as associates forever and, and complain about the issues that are that are facing us, then it's just going to continue on the traje trajectory that it is and people are going to be on Dental Town screaming and moaning and groaning and bitching about how the ethics and the morals are all gone from dentistry. So just my two cents. I think that the way that we get we get through all this is is practice ownership and being a practice owner. Not necessarily multiple practice ownership, but but running your own gig and being your own. one and see how it goes. Exactly. Just own a practice, take control over your personal and financial future uh, as a practice owner. Just my a opinion. A lot of young docs and associates, they always make excuses like, oh, I'm not ready yet. I need six more months, a year. I don't know how to do root canals. I mean, do you think a doctor or associate's ever going to feel ready for ownership or they just need to, you know, take that leap of faith and just pull the trigger and figure it out later? Yeah, it's it's a leap of faith. It's just like, you know, if you're waiting to have a kid till you're ready or you're waiting to get married until you're ready or you're waiting to take that next step, you know, you're always going to find excuses not to do that. Um, and it's the same thing with ownership. Uh, you know, at a certain point, you're as ready as you're going to be until you actually do it. So it's just time to do it. Um, make sure that you can safely and comfortably treat patients and that the speed level that you're at is not such that to have a successful practice is going to stress you out to the point that you can't provide that care and then stop worrying about what it's like to be a business owner or what procedures you can and can't do and and take that leap of faith because it's really not as hard as it looks i mean or seems it's you know dentistry's got like for a doctor for a doctor who owns their own practice they're making you know 30 40 percent of every dollar that's collected, you know, if they keep their overhead under control. So there's 30 to 40% margins. If you're just okay at, at managing your overhead. Yeah. Where the S and P 500, these big, huge companies operated at 8.9% profit margin. They were like three times more profitable than those guys. You know, you got a lot of room to screw up and <laughs> still be 
okay. So um, it's a leap of faith at a certain point, but one that that's highly, highly rewarding and that doesn't have a huge downside in almost all cases. All right, Hunter. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, just keep on trying to pump out the word out there to try and inspire these young grads to get into practice ownership. Thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I, I you know, hope everybody listens to these podcasts and looks into ownership and, and takes away from, from what these podcasts and all your guests are trying to trying to promote so that we have a, a better dental future for the on-site solo doctor owner um, the way it's always been. So hope this all helps. All right.